prepare to look at God's Word from Romans chapter 16, I want to uh, share with you that I believe that this is a very appropriate text for us to look at as we prepare to come and celebrate the Lord's table for congregation. Our passage this morning is Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. And if I may uh, speak just a moment to our little theologian, would you please draw for me a picture of a large number of people sitting around the largest table in the world. A large number of people and just the largest table in the world. Well, that's the picture I'd like for you to begin working working on. As you hear this passage, I hope that all of you see how obvious that picture is. The Lord's table is an anticipation of that great deal in the future when the church will gather around the table the Bible calls this gathering the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And when this happens, every follower of Jesus will come together from all over the world and also in all eras of time. We have an opportunity this morning to celebrate a foretaste of that great meal in the future. And the passage you're about to hear is going to sound an awful lot like a roll call of diverse people that have been converted and have spiritual connection with one another. And so, in one way or another, uh, they have the spiritual connection, but they also have a physical connection. They're part of the church, the congregations, and home. And Paul perhaps knows most of them, but he doesn't know all of them. And some of the people who are listed here know Paul, but not all of them know who Paul is. However, as you listen to this passage, while we feel like a roll call, we need to perceive something more in this passage. I'll tell you what that is after we pray and have a listen to this passage. So please join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for being with us. We thank you that us is the corporate body and you are with us. We thank you now for being with us in the reading and the study and the hearing of your word. We thank you for speaking to us and ask that you, by your spirit, make yourself and our wonderful Savior known. In his name, amen. So again, our passage is in Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Crayai, that you may welcome her the Lord and the worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. To greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Hunia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. I greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristotle's. Greet my kinsmen, Erodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Tiphanae and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, 
also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greek Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greek Philologos, Hulia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of our Lord. I want to begin rather awkwardly, it may seem awkward, and I want to begin by us thinking about what a stern command is. What is a command that is, well, stern? I can remember when my father was teaching me how to drive a car. I learned how to drive in a manual. And I remember him uh, talking me through the steps of how to drive this car. But every now and again, he would say things sternly, things that I must never forget. Never force it into second gear when you're driving down the interstate. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, all of those are instructions on how to drive a car, but there are some instructions that are particularly stern. And when we read the Greek New Testament, we recognize those verbs that are particularly stern. And if we go backwards, we find in Romans 15, where Paul says that each of us satisfies neighbor for his good and build him up. And he says, welcome, receive one another, just as Christ has received you. And in the Greek, those are firm, stern commands. Satisfy your neighbor for his good. Welcome one another in Christ. Romans 14, don't despise one who eats food that you don't eat. Don't judge one who eats food that you don't eat. And he says in Romans 13, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't do that. These are stern commands. But here in chapter 16, if we look at this in the Greek language, there's a command word that occurs 16 times. It's marked as being stern. You know what that word is? It's greet. So greet Prisca and Aquila in verse 3. Greet my beloved Epinetus in verse 5. These are stern commands. But the word itself, it doesn't seem, well, it doesn't seem very stern at all. Greet. I'll happily greet people. Why do I need that stern command? Well, don't forget that Paul is writing to a small body of people in Rome, the largest city of the ancient world, likely three times as densely populated as Manhattan. The average home is about 100 square feet. Imagine living in that kind of setting. Here, the city that invents the apartment complex. And in that city, Paul is telling you to do something that may feel a little bit unnatural. Because in this setting, your desire is to protect your family, to protect your property, to protect your holiness of living as a Christian person in this large, large city. And yet, greet one another. Because what Paul is telling us in this passage is that for God's own glory and according to his own design, he's united to himself a diverse people, this great community of holy fellowship. That's what God has done. And now go and greet one another. I want to real quickly talk about the Christians of special attention in this passage. And not because I want to, but because Paul seems to in the first four verses. He spends an awful lot of time on just three people. So I want to begin with Christians of special attention. And then I want to move from there to consider ordinary Christians, although... I don't like that word, ordinary, but there's a body of people who Paul just kind of throws at us rather quickly, and I think there's, I think there's much to learn there. And then at the end, there are applications in this passage for our life today as a congregation, covenant Presbyterian church. 
But let's begin with Christians of special attention. You see it right there in front of you, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at King Crab. Now Paul's writing this letter from Corinth. He's staying in the city of the home of a man by the name of Gaius. If you have verse 23 in front of you, you would see Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church. So Paul, he's staying with Gaius, but there's another church about six miles away from where Paul is in Corinth. As he writes this letter, or rather, as a man by the name of Tertius uh, writes the letter, uh, according to Paul's words. And that's, that little city, six miles away, is called Cancrea, and Phoebe worships there, a different congregation. And Paul says that she is a servant in this, uh, this uh, city, or this church, in a city on the, on the port. And when he says that she's a servant, it's probably not a title. There's no other titles in this passage. Look at verse 3, fellow workers. That's not an official title. It's more what they do. And so Phoebe, she's a servant, and she's been, Paul says, a patron of many or a protector of many. So perhaps Phoebe is wealthy. She's been a financial supporter of many who are serving the gospel. And certainly Phoebe is wealthy enough to travel. And think about that. A woman who is wealthy enough to have the kind of protection necessary to travel from Corinth to Rome to deliver this very letter that we've just read. Well, Phoebe then is uh, a notable person to Paul, but then there's others that Paul mentions. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. And these two are likely a married couple, a business owners who uh, run a fairly successful business, a a tent-making or leather-working business, which actually was a very needed business when a lot of your clientele are military or the government. And they may have become converted in Rome. Think about that. It's very church. Paul's writing to them. They may have been converted. But then eight years ago, they were expelled from their home, and they had to go to Corinth. That's how Paul got to meet them. And then they traveled with Paul to Ephesus, and they stayed there, perhaps even uh, uh, opening the very church that was meeting in their home. Prisca and Aquila may be actually church planters. And then about three years ago, they would have been allowed to return to Rome. And now here they are in Rome, a part of the Christian community there. And so Paul is writing. Now, Paul also says that they risk their necks for Paul. And the way the Greek expresses that, the emphasis is on the risking part, that they voluntarily did so. They were happy to risk their necks. Let me remind all of us that when Paul was in Corinth, Paul was deathly afraid. He was afraid of what happened to his own neck. And in fact, Jesus comes to him while he's in Corinth and uh, comforts him and says, continue to work here, I'll take care of you. It was in that city that there was some risk-taking for the gospel, and Christian and Philip were willing to do that. Now, these three individuals, Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, why do you think they get special attention. There's a couple of obvious things we need to notice. Their work is valuable to Paul. We mustn't think that that Paul finds them valuable simply because of their connection to resources or uh, their skills and abilities. That Paul truly needs Phoebe, and he truly needs Prisca, and he truly needs Aquila. They're valuable to him by necessity. 
And what's remarkable is that the, the, these three get special attention because Paul, it seems, wants to display their work with very bright lights. He wants to actually hold them up, uh, let the church know that these people are particularly valuable to him. They really matter to him. It isn't citizenship or ethnicity that is so valuable to Paul, but it's people working for the gospel. Those are the ones whom he finds most valuable. I wonder if I went out to the parking lot and looked at the various bumper stickers uh, in our parking lot, what I would find. Well, I'm sure I'd find colleges, and I'm sure I'd find uh, sports teams, and I'd find schools, and, and that's well and good. But if Paul drove here this morning, one thinks that his bumper sticker might actually say Phoebe, or Prisca, or Aquila. And I wonder why in my car there's not a bumper sticker that says Donovan on it, because Donovan's the man who led me to Jesus. But for Paul, they're very viable, and he wants them to have special attention because of their work for the gospel. And just a couple of things to note before moving on to uh, what I've already called once ordinary Christians, beginning in verse 5. At first, these three individuals, they're using their lives as business people for gospel work. Phoebe, Prisca, and Aquila. They're not actual officers. These are not people who are serving in official capacities, and they're not people who are uh, offering a particular kind of gospel work that requires uh, ordination. In fact, there's something about even them that is common, even though Paul spent four verses describing them. Look how explicitly Paul says that Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila are serving what? They're serving the church. In verse 1, verse 4, probably verse 2 as well, it's the church that is mentioned, even though, well, these are significant business people. I think that sometimes we uh, use loosely the term kingdom work. Are you doing kingdom work through your vocation? Kingdom work, that kind of work that you can perform without ordination. Are you doing that kingdom work? I wonder if the word kingdom shouldn't be replaced with ecclesia. Because these three individuals are doing work for the church, just the local church that they care so much about. And they're using their vocations for that church. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Uh, we should note that women do play a significant role in the life of the church, according to Paul. You know, we can't always determine gender based upon proper names, and that's to be sure here in chapter 16. But it seems that at least five or six or maybe seven of the names mentioned in Romans 16 are actually women. And notice that Phoebe is carrying this letter. What a remarkable task that is, carrying Holy Scripture. And while she didn't write it, verse 22 says Tertius wrote it, she still brings it to the congregation at Rome. That's pretty remarkable. And think about Aquila and Prisca. They had a teaching ministry in Corinth, teaching a pretty notable people, someone like Apollos, who was known to be a man of eloquent speech. But he needed some help with regards to his view of doctrine. And these are two individuals that helped him with that. I think that's important to notice. And let me just say something else along those lines. It's actually hotly debated by uh, scholars about the kind of role that women played in first century Roman society. Was it a significant role or was it not a significant role? And this is uh, uh, true among scholars who do not profess faith in Jesus. There's a lot of debate here. But one thing that's agreed upon is that women seem to play a significant role, certainly in governmental life. 
So in the Roman Empire, women did play a significant role, but it was often through off-the-record power and influence, and it certainly would have been limited to Roman citizens. That much scholars agree. But look at what Paul's doing. But Paul's being very forceful about the importance of women in the life of the church. They don't have to be Roman citizens to play a significant role. I think that would be a bit countercultural, even to members of the Roman aristocracy. Well, let's move on then and consider uh, the people whom Paul says less about, beginning in verse 5. And I want to group them together and, and say three things to all of us about these individuals. I mean, here we have a list of 23 names. And I want us, I want us to hear, hear just three things about them. They all have very unique stories. They all devote their lives to the local church. And they all live within their common, ordinary connections. But the first is this. They all have unique stories of the Christian life. Look at verse 5. Greet my beloved Epinetus. He's the first convert in Asia. And by that, we should probably read Ephesus. And now he's living uh, here in Rome. He probably wasn't converted through Paul. The evidence suggests that he was converted through Prisca and Aquila. Look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Hunia. They're Jews, probably a married couple, and they've experienced imprisonment. And Paul highlights that they were actually converted even before he was converted. Look at verse 10. Greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ, which may mean that there was a challenging situation, a public situation that Apelles lived through and therefore proved his faith. Could be persecution. It sounds like it, doesn't it? But some scholars think that it could be church discipline. And now the people of the church know that he is approved in Christ. I mean, if you take just these, uh, these four individuals, Epinetus, Andronicus and Hunia, and Apellus, I mean, they would describe their Christian experience in, in a variety of ways. It, one of the first followers of Jesus in a massive city, Ephesus, a married couple in prison for Jesus, a follower of Jesus sanctified before other followers of Jesus. And then if you add to this the mix of ethnic diversity, uh, 18 of these names are clearly Greek, seven of them are uh, clearly Latin. One is certainly Hebrew, Mary. And then think about the fact that uh, these Christians uh, occupy different socioeconomic backgrounds. One third of the city of Rome were slaves. One third were former slaves. And Jews and Greeks, well, they're likely to be slaves. And yet, when you look at the list of names here, verses 10 and 11, Aristobulus, Herodian, well, these are likely significant political leaders. But just think about the list of names here. Different Christian stories all over the place. Unique lives, but also unique stories about how Jesus found them, claimed them as his own. Well, I dare say that that's not very different from the body that we have here this morning, is it? All of us uh, have been found by Jesus. He's drawn us to himself. Those who profess faith in Jesus here this morning. But our stories are so different. And again, I, I don't mean to uh, fill us with a sense of guilt, but if this is true, that these stories are diverse and these people are gathered together uh, with these diverse stories, well, and if we're like that, it seems like oftentimes when we gather together, there's an awful lot of conversations about our career, our vocation, about the weather, about vacation. And, and perhaps there 
want to be more conversations about uh, our lives as followers of Jesus and how Jesus is leading us day by day, not just what he's done in the past. We should expect those stories to be rather interesting. So they all have unique stories, but they also all work hard for the church. Now here, I'm actually very happy to introduce you to this. Look at this list of names and look at how hard they work for the local church. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you, verse 6. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker, verse 9. Look at verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Timphina and Tryphosa. Also in verse 12, greet beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. In verse 13, the mother of Rufus. By the way, is mothering hard work? I think it might be. The mother Rufus, uh, mother of Rufus, she's been a mother to me as well. Now, not all of them have served the church in exactly the same way, but they are united in their great devotion to the church, and I don't want us to miss that. So, unique stories. They've all worked very hard for the local church. And then finally this. They live their faith in the setting of existing connections. This is a little bit tricky. I mean, I don't want to disparage those of us who actually don't have blood relatives who are a part of this congregation. You know, we live in a very mobile society, and so it's not uncommon for us to have virtually no family living in the same city in which we live. But the influence of Christianity through family connections, through ordinary connections, is so significant to the Christians in Rome that it's hard to know what is a natural connection in this list from Romans 16 and what is a connection that has happened through the church. There's a couple of examples real quickly. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. You think these are genetic brothers, real brothers, natural brothers, and maybe not. Maybe this is a reference to a church family. Maybe the church meets in the home of the first one listed. But look at verse 15. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister. That seems easier, doesn't it? Nereus has a sister, and she's a Christian as well. And there's again Rufus, whose mother is a believer. And by the way, uh, there is evidence that would suggest that Rufus's father is also a believer, uh, the very Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly Rufus's mother is a believer, and so is Rufus. And Trifina and Tephrosa, these are Christian sisters, but they're also likely genetic sisters. And then look at the references to households. Uh, now, these are probably not genetic connections, uh, but these are households that Christianity seems to have invaded. Verse 10, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Yeah, Paul's talking about an entire family here. Uh, Aristobulus may or may not have been a Christian. He may or may not be alive. Many scholars suggest he's actually not alive. But in his household, that ordinary gathering, those ordinary relationships... Well, Jesus Christ, he's invaded that. And just as he has converted natural families, he seems to convert households, many of whom would not be naturally members of that household. That seems to be the case with another man in verse 11. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. And there's historical evidence to suggest that Narcissus was a notable figure in Rome. We don't know if he's a believer, though. But there are a lot of believers in his household. But what's the takeaway from this? You know, we really should ex expect Christianity to spread through our common connections like our families. 
Evangelizing to our, to our uh, family members is very, di- very difficult. Many of us know this very well. But those in your family who don't believe, they should know that you're a believer. And they ought to be able to recognize that about your life. Because when we look at these ordinary connections, in these ordinary connections, we find spiritual connections taking root. And let's not be secret Christians in our families, but rather let's pray that the gospel would work in and through those ordinary connections, uh, even our ordinary connections within our workplace. May people know that we are Christians. I think those, those are three uh, takeaways, that these individuals all have unique stories, that these individuals all love the local church, and that these individuals are witnessing some transformation of ordinary connections into spiritual connections. Now, here's where I want to finish. What about us? What about our congregation right here? Well, I think there's three things that are very clear. A couple of them are a little, little uncomfortable. Let's begin with the discomfort. Paul is assuming that these individuals in Rome would draw a distinction between believers and non-believers. It is clear that Paul is addressing believers, but in order for that to happen, we have to draw some kind of line in the sand so that those who are believers are known to be believers. Remember, this passage is Paul commanding Christians to greet Christians. Verse 16, greet one another, Paul says. So if we believe that anyone can be a follower of Jesus, certainly we should expect that these these believers have different stories, uh, different ethnicities, uh, all of that. But we should expect these believers to have something in common such that we know that they are believers. We need to recognize Christians wherever we find them, even those who are different than us, even those who are not a part of the PCA. Think about that. We need to embrace Christians wherever we find them, but Christians, they actually need to name themselves as a Christian. That's why here at Covenant, we believe that the the doctrine of church membership is actually taught in Scripture, and we use that word membership even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. It's so important that uh, we not only profess faith in Jesus Christ, but there's someone that hears that profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that we're actually known as Christians so that Christians might greet us as Christians. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? But let's move on. And we need to make a distinction between believers and non-believers. But we also need to know that none of us here, as Christians, are alone. We live in a time right now where many of us do feel exactly that. We feel isolated and alone. And uh, I feel that it's uh, very interesting that Christians have not made a good habit of talking about that feeling of aloneness. And uh, I hope that we take from this coronavirus season into a post-pandemic season a greater comfort in speaking about the loneliness that we feel. Because what Paul is saying here is he's saying that while you might feel lonely, you're not alone. All the churches of Christ greet you. That's what he says in verse 16. The the churches that Paul's actually visited uh, greet them. How is that even possible? Paul doesn't even know all the individuals that he's named here. But the churches greet you. You are not alone ever. And real quickly, a piece of evidence for this. Think about the long lists in the Bible of names. Start with the Old Testament. 
Long list of names. What do they do? Well, they tell you if you're a member of the family of Abraham, or they tell you if you're a Levite, or if you are a Reubenite or a Simeonite. They tell you uh, which part of the family you belong to. You go backwards and you follow that, and ta-da, I'm a uh, Benjamite. Well, we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. They also tell you the line of kings, that kings are connected, and we get this long list of names so that we might see those connections of kings. What are in both of those lists? Well, important people, people that are connected, the notables. And look at the New Testament. Look what we have. In the New Testament, Matthew 1 and Luke 3, long list of names that tell us about Jesus, who he is, what family he has come from. Notable names in that list, huh? And by the way, your name is not in any of those Old Testament lists, and your name is not in that list that shows the lineage of Jesus. But your name is right here in Romans 16. And so is mine. This is us. You couldn't be alone if you tried to be alone. As a Christian, if you think that your personal identity is so very important, well, why would you want that personal identity to be so very important when you are listed in the Lamb's Book of Life along with others? You're never alone. Be careful of your fight for your personal identity. Be careful. Be careful about your thoughts that no one's quite like me. No one's quite like me. No one does the stuff I do. No, no, one's, no one thinks like I do. Be careful. You're in this list in Romans 16 if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. No one is alone, even though many of us feel alone right now. And then finally this. The big hurrah, the big end. Do you know that a holy kind of life is actually in this passage? Do you know that? Listen to this. At the very beginning and the very end of this passage, there is something about your holy life. There's something about the way you think, the way you speak, and the way you act that is very important to your greeting Christians and your being greeted as a Christian. Look at verse, verse 2. Paul tells the Romans to welcome and to receive Phoebe in a special way. Do you see that? To receive her in a way worthy of the saints. Now, that's your responsibility. It's mine to receive Phoebe, but to receive the other saints in a way that is worthy of being a saint yourself. Caring for Phoebe is actually a measurement of who you are as a Christian, according to Paul. The way you live your life matters. In fact, the simple proof would be if they didn't receive Phoebe well, do you think that Paul, as demure as he is, as afraid as he is, do you think Paul would call that out? Try not receiving Phoebe well. Paul will call that out. And so there's something about holiness in the beginning of the passage, but also at the very end in a surprising place. And here's where I want to finish. In verse 16, Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we often emphasize the kissing aspect of verse 16. And maybe we blush. Or actually, maybe we don't blush. I blush. But all of these individuals that Paul has just listed are connected to one another. And he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. However, in the Greek, the word for holiness comes before the word for kiss. It doesn't have to. And I think that the word kiss is not the word of focus. It's the word holy. Because that actually connects us to verse 2 at the very beginning. 
You know, a salutation of a kiss was actually something very common, very ordinary, very typical. Everyone did it in uh, Rome at the time. It was common and ordinary. That's what we need to see about it. It's not unique. It's very typical. But Paul says, don't do just the typical. Sanctify the typical. Make it holy. A kiss would be as, as, as common as a handshake, or nowadays we don't do that, do we? Fist bump, shoulder or elbow thing? What's, it has a name, I'm sure. That's what we do instead. But we need to shake hands or fist bump or this with holiness. A kiss that is holy is evidence of the kind of person doing the kissing. It's a holy person. I just think about this. For his own glory and according to his own design, God has unified his diverse, united his diverse people into this great community of holy fellowship. This is who we are as a people. And real quickly, once again, it's important for us to be known as Christians. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's where Paul began. And it's important for us to know that we are never alone and to be wary when we act as if we are. And then finally, we actually are called to live the kind of lives that people would recognize us as Christian people. God has united his people into a great community of holy fellowship. Let that be on our minds as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. But join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for your work, which you have done to us and through us. Would you bless us as we come to this table together, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.